Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, award-winning veteran author Dean King talks about his latest book, a biography of the pioneering environmentalist John Muir. King's Guardians of the Valley, John Muir and the Friendship that Saved Yosemite, was published by Scribner in March 2023. Dean King was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Brian J. Jones. So, Dean, this book is typical of you. The descriptions are amazing. I know you are one of these guys who believes very strongly in sense of place. Did you go there and how much of it still exists and how much of it still looks the way it looked in Muir's time? Yeah, Brian, of, of course I went there. That was sort of the bonus of writing this book was being in, you know, in Yosemite as much as possible. And the book was inspired by a visit to Yosemite. That the view from Inspiration Point, which we all know, that magnificent view down the valley with El Capitan on the left and the waterfalls on the right. And um, that was the the genesis of this book. So the visuals and being there in that place were super important to me. And John Muir became the embodiment of that place. So he captured it in, in beautiful language, uh, which I was able to take advantage of as, as well in the descriptions of the book. So Yes, I think, you know, place is, is very important to this book. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your decision to write this book. I mean, you talk about a little bit in the book, but I mean, this was a little bit of a, of a crusader in you for this one, right? <laughs> well, you know, it was a departure from a lot of my nautical and adventure stuff, although Muir had a ex- very adventurous life. And I try to emphasize a lot of that, that fun um, interaction he had with nature. He was fearless. But I, I've been fortunate in my career to, to be able to really pursue passion projects. You know, one thing has kind of led to another. And uh, I think, you know, because I'm so enthusiastic about what I'm getting to write about, it's, you know, empowered me to to enjoy it and, and to really work hard at it. Uh, so that's been a, a real pleasure of the career. You know, it was, it was, I think, 1997, I went to Yosemite Valley for my father-in-law's 70th birthday. My mother-in-law had gotten a cabin there and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been in the Appalachian Mountains, I'd been to Europe in the mountains there, but seeing Yosemite Valley, just immediately, I, I knew my perception of America had changed. And, and you know, I wanted to, to be there and to think about it and ultimately to write about it. You talked a little bit about Muir. I mean, the man is insane. It was amazing to me how he's just, all, all the climbing he does with no gear. He's like in his suit almost walking around there, like peering over the edges of cliffs and walking behind waterfalls. I mean, how much of that sort of adventuring did you do out there? You know, because of COVID and the forest fires, I wasn't able to do my typical deep wilderness trip that I like to do. And I'm I'm planning to do it now, post-fact and and hopefully before the paperback comes out. But um, I I did get out, you know, into the valley. I got up into Tuolumne Meadows. I went out to Hetch Hetchy and, you know, did all those things you could see in, in day hikes. But um, I'm dying to go down into Muir Gorge, which is sort of very steep and, and almost technical climb down through the uh, all along the Tuolumne River from Tuolumne Meadows down to Hetch Hetchy. 
and um, some other things. So I, I've got a John Muir Trek that's forming right now. I'm, I'm excited about. But, you know, I, I was there enough and got into some very quiet places. And when I speak about the book, I always emphasize, you know, when Muir was there, there were hundreds of people going a year. We now have millions of people going a year. So he wouldn't recognize that anymore. But I always emphasize to people, you know, I was there last October and I have a beautiful photo uh, that my wife took of the sunlight sunset on Half Dome. And we're on the valley floor and there's not another person in the frame of the picture. So you can still find these moments of lovely solitude that that Muir would recognize. Um, We also went and visited the Bull Tree, which is in Sequoia National Forest. And you drive in a couple miles, hike in a mile and a half. And we sat with one of the largest sequoias you know, on earth now, we had lunch there and not another soul came. So you can find these, still find these wonderful moments there. Very good. So I was fascinated by the way you wrote a lot about Muir and his adventures, because you'd be writing about Muir exploring. And as a reader, I'm going, oh God, what what did he do next? I want to know what he did. And you're slowing everything down to describe the scenery and the landscape. Are you doing this to us deliberately, Dean? Uh, I'm trying to, you know, make it dramatic. It was dramatic. I'm, I don't have to try. And, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to infuse that drama, I'm trying to put you there. You know, that that's what I try to do with all my books is to make these historical figures alive again, not monuments, not um, not non-people. I want them to be people. I want you to be there with them and to experience. And I think, you know, their greatness really comes out more that way because you're there looking over the edge of the cliff into the valley with Muir and, and you're petrified, but there he is looking at the, the the sunlight refracting through the beads of spray on the waterfall and seeing the river die there at the, the cliff's edge, but being born again. And so if you can be there experiencing that, just that image to me alone, you know, if I take that away from the book, I'm fulfilled in, in some way. Yeah, I, re- I mean, I really felt like you as the biographer were doing what Muir would do to people who were with him. People are trying to move on. I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, what does Muir do next? What is and, and you were kind of saying, no, stop, take this in, look at the scenery, be moved. You were, you were doing something I thought very artful with it. I was very impressed with how you deliberately just slowed the reader down in there and wouldn't let us move. You made us stand there on the edge of the world and watch everything. Well, well, thank you, Brian. And I think, you know, um, Muir, we tend to see the a few photographs of him with the grizzled beard in the wilderness. And we might have read some Muir. It's very dense. And, you know, if you come at, at it cold, you know, particularly maybe if you're in high school or, you know, it can be very turgid. And I encourage people to read Muir as poetry. He had the, the mind of an engineer. And this is stuff I discovered as I wrote the book. He, he really was an inventor. Um, he worked in factories as a young man. He's a very complex guy. And, and when he looked at things, when he looked at nature and studied nature, he looked at every tiny little element of it, which is how he came up with, you know, the, the weeds and the, the plants here are as important as the, as the mountain. And these things all need to live together in a healthy relationship. So I think Muir slows you down and he slowed me down. You know, when I first started reading Muir, I'm like, wow, this is some pretty heavy lifting here. Um, he gets caught on a mountain in a blizzard and you're like, oh, my gosh, is he going to survive this? And he builds a little yeah. hut and he goes in the hut and he's looking at the snow. A bird flies in and he fe- he's feeding the bird crumbs. And you're like, God, you know, you're wondering if he's going to survive. And here he is taking care of a bird. 
and and looking at, at snow crystals and things. So he slowed me down. And, you know, I think eventually it took me a little time, but I, I saw the great beauty in that. And so, you know, I tried to bring that to the book as well. Yeah, I, I loved how he, I mean, he was almost like Batman, like he shows up in all these little communities and they're like, oh, you must be John Muir. I mean, like every he was, you know, one of the most famous men, everybody. I mean, it, it's amazing to me that people would read stop again, stopping to slow down to read those long pieces he was doing. Talk a little bit about him and his editor, why that relationship was so important. I thought it was fascinating. As I was looking at Muir, you know, again, I came to the Valley first. Then I was like, well, how do I write about this place? And then it was like, well, John Muir is the sort of physical embodiment. He loved this place. It was, you know, God's temple to him. And um, he was the bard of Yosemite Valley. So I started studying him. I I read Lenny Marsh Wolf's Pulitzer Prize winning biography from the, the 1940s. And he had this sprawling life and did so much. And he traveled all over the world. He explored Alaska. And I came away from that biography thinking, wow, he's this marvelous, wonderful figure. But why is he important? Why do we need to know about him today? And what can I do here that would, you know, elucidate his life or, you know, make it uh, important to us? And I realized that it needed to have a, a cleaner narrative for us to relate to. And it really was all about uh, what he did for the environment and how important that is today. So as I was I was going through his life, I kept thinking, wow, you know, his walk through the South right after the Civil War, it's amazing. I'm going to do that and recreate that ends up being a paragraph in the book. You know, I had to clean that out. And he had amazing relationships with a lot of people, incredible long term uh, epistolary relationships with a lot of people around the nation. He's Forrest Gump. I mean, he knows everybody. Yeah, (laughs) it was a small world back then. But, you know, he wrote First Century Magazine uh, in New York City. And when he finally connects in person with his editor who comes out to San Francisco and they decide to go to Yosemite, well, it was then a state park because Abraham Lincoln had given it to the state of California to take care of. And Muir showed it to Johnson, Robert Underwood Johnson, his editor. And Johnson says, look, Muir, you're right. This is the most spectacular place, but it's not being cared for properly. We need to make a national park here. So as a writer, when I saw John Muir, the writer, and his editor come up with an idea based on Muir's passion for nature, his writing for nature, and then use it concretely to get policy passed in Washington, D.C., because Johnson said, you write me two articles, I'll publish them in Century Magazine, then I'll take them down to Washington, D.C., and I'll put them on every congressperson's desk, and we'll get a bill passed. And that, to me, that clicked as just an incredible thing. Does that exist today? No, I, I don't think you could write a couple articles and your editor would go down to Washington, D.C. and get a bill passed. So I, I thought well, this is a fascinating moment. Ultimately, I think it was one of the great writer-author relationships in the English language and in, in may, maybe in history for concrete action coming from passionate writing. Yeah, I'm not, I, I mean, I think I'm not going to tell you that you made the right choice because I absolutely think you made the right choice and you as the author know you did. Because it, it, it is funny, the, the bit you talked about with him him walking you know, along the South, that's one of those moments where you're like, wait, that was it? Um, because there's so much going on uh, in the book. And I, I think it was great to focus on that relationship, which was so, you know, I think as writers, we could relate his, his editors constantly saying, can, can you deliver me, you know, X amount of words by this date? Okay, well, how about this date? Okay, well, then how about this date? <laughs> The other person I really fell in love with in the book was Louie. There's that moment when she says to him, this ranch where we live is just taking 
up too much of your time and is pulling you away from writing. And I just thought, my God, every writer should be so blessed with someone who truly gets you that way. I'm, I'm glad that came through because it would be easy for Louis to get lost in, in the big personalities here. There's this uh, Jean Carr, the, the wife of a professor who becomes mere soulmate and introduces them to Emerson and all these Harvard professors and really creates this intellectual life for Muir who's living out in the wilderness. There's a mystery on whether um, they're more than soulmates, but Jean Carr eventually introduces Muir to Louis, who will become his wife. And she's the daughter of a fruit rancher um, near San Francisco. And they're pretty different. She's a, a brilliant pianist. She loves the fruit ranch, but she's a homebody. Muir takes her out to Yosemite, and uh, and she doesn't like it. They have two daughters, and Muir takes her out hiking in the mountains, and, and then he draws a sketch on a letter to his daughter, Wanda, and it's him pushing uh, Louis up the hill with a walking stick. And it, it's very funny. Muir, Muir had a great sense of humor. But even though they were very different, and Muir worked on that fruit farm for about a decade, uh, worked really hard. He, he was very sort of type A on, on top of all the details, he was wasting away physically and psychologically. You know, he wasn't connected to the mountains. And Louis realized that. She understood her husband that well. And and even though the fruit ranch was at the center of their life and had been at the center of her life, she realized that there was something bigger at play here, that her husband, you know, his work uh, for nature, his writing was even more important than that and that he was wasting away. And so she basically pushed him out of the nest again and said, look, you need to go back to the mountains and get back in touch with what's important to you, what sustains you, and the, the thing that you do that's greatest for the nation. And so that that relationship is, is really magical. She was a homebody. She didn't like to be photographed, so there aren't many pictures of her, and she was kind of quiet. So it's easy. You know, there's not a lot of material on her, but Muir will go into San Francisco and hole up at a hotel because there's too much action on the fruit ranch, and the daughters are playing the piano and everything, and she's for that. And she edits all of his work as well. She's his first reader, and and um, those of, of us writers who have spouses or, you know, um, significant others who do that important that is. So I really wanted her to be present in the book and her importance to to be there if, if just sort of, you know, in the background. I guess it's not a surprise, but um, I thought Muir's views on women were incredibly progressive for the era. And I love when he takes the, you know, the sort of the, the train of ladies with him up into Yosemite. And he just talks about how like they were hardier than the men were. It was this very modern voice sort of just like jumping right off the page at you, I thought. You know, who knew? And again, as I delved into his life and, you know, he had this tremendous uh, volume of correspondence that's been digitized and is at the University of the Pacific. And I was able to explore all these letters, but, you know, it comes out, he, he does love women. He's got two wonderful daughters who he was very important to. They were very important to him. He walks with them. He takes time with them. And it's clear in the, in the letters that they wrote to each other and in, in, in the material we have about them, how important that was. Um, Louis was extremely important to him. And I think then you see that he creates the Sierra Club. And an, another sort of thing I like to debunk is that the Sierra Club was not invented to protect nature first. It was invented to bring people to nature. That's an important uh, differentiation. Muir believed that you found spiritual fulfillment through nature. And then that was the greatest embodiment uh, of God to him. And so he wanted people to, to come to it and experience it. He also knew that 
people who came to nature fell in love with it would then protect it by taking his daughters out there and eventually creating the Sierra Club and including women on the high trips who hadn't been included in these kinds of things and and brilliantly having Harriet Monroe, the the poet from Chicago, come out and write beautifully about it as well and, and, and write about how liberating it was as a woman to be out in nature and to shed some of these hangups from the cities. It was a great moment, I think, in in the gradual women's liberation. And then Muir and the Sierra Club would include women when they were defending nature, um, not just in your own backyard, but as a national uh, treasure and, and treasure for all humanity. So I think that's a, a a story within the story that that that's really important. That you know, as a father of four and and brother, you know, daughters and 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 brother of four sisters something that was important to me to to um, include and bring out. Are uh, all of his papers, you said they're digitized, are they available to anybody or you have to be on site? No, you can get them online. And it was a godsend over COVID. You know, I was able to sit in my studio for a good couple of years and really go through all his correspondence. Johnson and Muir had a four decade relationship and they wrote each other sometimes a couple times a week when it was really important they'd write telegrams because it took 6 days for a letter to go across the country and this is from uh through the 1870s 80s 90s up till 1914 when Muir died and so it's wonderful to watch that correspondence it's it's just an extended conversation has elements of sort of a Jane Austen novel where you know, one will write a letter and something will happen before that letter gets to the other one. And, and that one will write a letter. So there's sometimes some confusion and, you know, fun confusion to to sort of parse in the book as well. Now, how analog are you, Dean? Do you print everything out and put in black binders and file it or you do everything digitally and online? You know, um, these days uh, I've gone, my, my filing cabinets are full with past books. Unfortunately, I've tried to move as much to boxes and put them in storage as I can. But um, so now, uh, I did I did take all of the Muir and Johnson letters and put them in computer files because I needed to edit them and touch them up and then you know put notes into them. And then I was able to extract from those to insert into the the book where I needed. So it was a pretty big process. But the fact that it's all available there and, and easily searchable and easily grabbable was really a great, great help in writing this book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still a printed out and write on it. (laughs) You know, people are always curious if you're using electronic documents, but what system do you use to organize that kind of stuff? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I will highlight in the letters underline in all my books, I write and I put post-its and I will create files on topics with important quotations and citations so that, that when I get maybe to that section, I've got them right there. It's a bit of a hodgepodge of the way I work, but you know, uh, fortunately now with computers, even from from the get go, when you write your proposal and you do a detailed table of contents, literally when I have that moment of oh god, I sold this book, now I got to write it, you know, I grab that detailed table of contents, I put it into a new file, and I put page breaks, and those are my chapters, so I can feed stuff in as I find it with citations, and you know, organize that way. Yeah, I will always be an advocate for the power of the proposal because, you know, I, I'm the same way I do sort of detailed chapter breakdowns and summaries. And that's right. You don't always know where you're. I always call it a guiding vocal track because you don't know where you're going until you find stuff. But uh, I got stuck on one book and I and I had not done that because my editor was like, no, no, we work together for it. Don't worry about that. And I got about three quarters way through the book. And I was like, man, I wish I had 
like an outline to go back and look at so I could see where my head was going. I said, it's, it's such a such a useful tool to have known where you were going all those years ago, like where you thought the narrative was going to go and using that just as a crutch sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's a, a blueprint for the project. Yeah. And if your editor is in some way the client, you got to have a, a basic understanding of where the thing's going to go. You know, every editor will let you explore and, and go in wonderful directions. And for me, that's a lot of a fun of the book is, is finding the new directions. That's what makes it fun every day to come to the desk is discovering new things and, and having twists and turns. And really the structure of my book changed over and over as I was writing it. I, I wrote chapters that, you know, in the end, I might extract a sentence or two to put in, you know, and it was useful. It was good stuff. And I think, you know, people have told me what we can see the level of research you've gone to here. And, and that's part of the process. But it also means there's there's a lot of work. This thing got up to 180,000 words at one point. It was wow. the contract was for 110,000. So I had to constantly beat it back. And I love the um, editorial discourse between Muir and Johnson. Johnson telling Muir to do something, but also soft touching certain things where he knew Muir would be prickly. And eventually my editor's like, Dean, that's great stuff. And you and I love it. But the book's too big and you got to trim some of that back. So, you know, there's a give and take there. And, and I think it's all for the better eventually. Yeah. How long did it take you, Dean? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I'm always a bit fuzzy on these things, but r- roughly four or five years is what oh, it's wow, taken. That's, that's a good pace. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it used to be a little less. I'm feeling like it takes me longer these days. But yeah, I mean, it, I think that's to thoroughly soak yourself in the in the business and then to unsoak yourself in some ways to extract yourself eventually because you're you're so thoroughly connected with that narrative as you go through it. I think um, there's a transition period each way. So the first two acts of that book are very much a nature story. It's a travelogue and it's a lot about the last act in there becomes a political thriller all of a Mm -hmm. sudden as you know, I'm out in New Mexico. And as we always say out here, whoever owns the water owns the West. And uh, the last third of your book becomes all about who's going to control the water in California. And it's I mean, it's it's a it's a great almost like, you know, plot twist all of a sudden because you've been going along and you're outdoors and we're walking through the woods. And all of a sudden it becomes about writing these letters sometimes frantically to each other. Did you corral the senator in the hall? Did you write? Did you talk to the committee chairman? All of a sudden it becomes a political novel in there. I think that kind of stuff is fun to change gears like that two thirds of the way through the book. It's a fascinating part of the book, and it's so. Can talk about why it's so important, first of all, but also just as the writer behind that. What was it like to just change gears like that all of a sudden in mid book? Well, I, you know, I think that's a great observation. I think every book, every life is going to have its challenges to to try to capture and put down on paper. And um, I try to keep my books very narrative. Um, this isn't the cradle to grave biography, though it does go from cradle to grave. But um, a lot of that that kind of material is uh, flowed into a narrative structure. And one of the challenges of Muir's life is that early on, he's incredibly active doing daring things in nature. And, and all of a sudden, at a certain point, you know, he 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 marries, he goes, works on, on a fruit ranch. And there's still going to be some adventures afterwards, but he's not this young kind of hippie-ish tramp, John Muir um planet earth the universe is what he wrote on his journal you know he he was kind of a wild guy and then um all of a sudden he he then uh becomes the writer uh the rancher the family man 
and then slowly is pulled into politics. And, and that's another beautiful thing that Johnson did was he told Muir, you need to you need to create uh, an entity out in California. You don't want New Yorkers fighting for California nature. Muir said, no, hey, I, I don't do that. I'm 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 out in nature. I write about nature. That's my role. And, and Johnson got a bunch of Berkeley professors and attorneys from uh, San Francisco said, hey, get together, start an organization, invite Muir. They did that. They invited Muir and then they elected him president of the Sierra Club. So um, this was a big transition for him in his life. He didn't want to do it. He was dragged sort of kicking and screaming into it. But he slowly came to appreciate it and love that aspect of his life. At one point he says, Johnson, you've turned me into a lobbyist. And it is kind of funny because he, he realizes uh, this transformation at the same time. One of the things that made Muir so important was that he stayed in nature. It was always his first concern was, how do I get back out into nature all through his life? So he didn't want to go to Washington, D.C. to appear in Congress. And so I, I had this issue, you know, all the action is moving to D.C. as we fight to consolidate the state park that Lincoln created with the national park that Muir and Johnson created as we um, create the, the national forest, which Muir and, and Johnson had a, a big role in. And then as we fight to protect Yosemite National Park, the part that San Francisco wants to take, create a reservoir around, which is going to destroy part of the park. So the, the action, you know, that I want to keep a very strong, you know, active narrative here, it switches to D.C. So that becomes a challenge. When Muir's absent from that, how do I keep that rolling? So, you know, I, I had to dig deep and find the people who were being active in their connections to the Sierra Club and to Muir and how that overlapped with the writing and the orchestrating that Muir and Johnson are doing. So it, it was a challenge. I think it was fun. I, I love going through the congressional record and finding these amazing speeches that, that are in there and these revelations in the record that I don't think have been touched in a long time. At the same time, I want to keep the narrative moving in a, in a personal way. So, so there's intercutting there. So that, that was a challenge. I, th I thought it was fun. Um, I hope it worked. <laughs> I'll end with the question that as a biographer, sometimes makes me clench my teeth, but I'm going to ask it from you anyway. Would Muir recognize or be happy with the condition of Yosemite and, and the West today? You know, it's it's a great question, and it's kind of the the, the big looming question. And you know, I, I don't know how he could have gone from you know being in a place that literally attracted hundreds of people to thousands of people to one that where you get three million people a year going to. And he really wanted to bring people to nature. Sierra Club fought to bring the automobile to the parks might not be what you would think, but, you know, they really wanted to get all people to the parks, not just wealthy people who could afford to go there with entourages. So there's a clearly a, a conflict there. And I think he also recognized that while this might have been the pinnacle to him, that all nature was important. The nature in your backyard is important. State parks are beautiful. We preserved a lot of nature. So I think things have changed. And, you know, as the population has exploded, we need to find other places where we can create that moment where you're really connecting with nature and your your health, your physical health, he knew was dependent upon that connection. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, finding that quiet time on the valley floor, finding that great trek into Sequoia National Forest to be alone in there. Th those, those moments, incredibly, when you have so many people going to these places, they still exist, but you have to work harder to get to them. So, I, you know, Muir was not naive. He had some of these great victories for the environment. 
and we haven't even touched on his relationship with Emerson and, and Theodore Roosevelt, but I think that he would be pleased with some aspects of the way we've protected nature and obviously chagrined by, you know, how humanity is sort of overwhelming nature at this point. Dean King, as always, you are brilliant. And it is such a pleasure to talk to you again, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Great to reconnect. That was author Dean King speaking with fellow biographer Brian J. Jones about his latest book, Guardians of the Valley, John Muir and the Friendship that Saved Yosemite, was published by Scribner in March 2023. We recorded this interview via Zoom on December 7th of last year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. <laughs>